This week on the Backtable Podcast. Patients, and, and I think that it makes sense. There, I always explain, like, listen, as a surgeon, I've seen many cystectomies, right? But this is their only one. So they don't know where they fall um, in the norm. And it hel- it's helpful to understand if I'm having, if they're having a small complication, that they're actually among the majority, honestly. You know, it's not, it's not uncommon, as you said, 67% have a complication at 30 days. And 15% of those are high grade. So, I mean, it's not an uncommon experience. We're going to try to avoid it. But if it happens, here's how we manage it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. We're bringing you part one of a two-part episode on perioperative optimization of cystectomy patients. And I think you'll find as we go through this that this actually applies to many patients undergoing all types of urologic surgeries. This is Aditya Bagrodi as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Angie Smith from UNC Department of Urology. Angie is the Director of Urologic Oncology and an Associate Professor. It's a tremendous group all around, and I think their bladder cancer program particularly shines. Angie, thanks so much for joining us this week. And how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for uh, for having me on the podcast. Excellent. Excellent. So, Angie, um, you've done a lot of work surrounding bladder cancer patient, patient-recorded outcomes, and really just making the entire journey from A to Z as positive, safe as it can possibly be for, for patients and their caregivers. And that'll be our focus of uh, conversation today. I wanted to share a quick story before we kind of just jump into it. A few years ago, my mother had bilateral knee replacements done sequentially. And for the first one, she jumped, she just went in for it. And it was, it was pretty rough, uh, postoperatively pain, dehydration, constipation. It really was kind of an extended convalescence. And the second go around, she had a preoperative physical therapist, dietitian, nutritionist, and it was a completely different experience. And, you know, as a surgeon, it it totally sold me on, you know, really making sure that we're comprehensively addressing everything that's required to make this a a safe experience for the patient is is absolutely critical. Um, Any just kind of general comments on that in general? Yeah, well, I think that anecdote is is increasingly common. I mean, that uh, a friend of mine made the same comment about their mother, (laughs) almost could have been the exact same story, had completely different experiences based on the presence and absence of uh, a planned, um, essentially ERAS protocol, you know, enhanced recovery after surgery protocol. And I think that we have mounting evidence of its benefit, but we also see these anecdotal experiences that really make us um, take pause and, and believe that, that doing these generally simple and systematic um, methods and strategies can make a really big difference in the patient's experience. And as you mentioned, my, some of my area of re- research um, studies focus on patient reported outcomes. So I think this dovetails really nicely with that because these are simple things that we all can do. We just have to know what they are and then systematically apply them to our practice. So I hope today it's just, uh, you know, a practical conversation of what one can do to improve their, um, their patient's experience from, from beginning to end. And that's, you know, from a surgeon's standpoint, that's hopefully what we all want um, for our patients. Absolutely, absolutely. So we won't focus too much on, you know, how we got to the decision to perform a cystectomy, indications, et cetera. But can you just kind of walk us through what that first conversation 
looks like when you're telling a patient and their loved ones what a cystectomy looks like? Yeah, well, cystectomy, and, I, and I've, I've gone, undergone multiple iterations of how I explain cystectomy to patients, but it's complicated and it takes time. I will say that for most of my patients, I let them know right away from the first time I meet them to speak about cystectomy, I say right up front that this is a lot of information and it won't be the last time we speak. I think that's important to set the stage because there's so much information to remember. It becomes very overwhelming. And the truth is it, it usually isn't the last time because many of these patients receive chemotherapy. Um, they need to come back before cystectomy. Um, they're going to have a pre-op. So there are multiple touch points. So that's the first, the first thing. The second is I try to, you know, have a conversation about things like complication rates. I want to set their expectations from the beginning. Expectation setting, I'm sure you are well aware and many um, individuals listening, expectation setting is incredibly important. That is getting in the patient's mind what is to come so that they can be prepared as best they can. And so I explain, I, you know, some of these things are going to be difficult to hear, but the, the, you know, as your surgeon, I'm here to help navigate you through this process. And we're going to try to reduce, for example, complication rates or, you know, readmissions and some of these um, things through these maneuvers. So I talk to them about what the surgery entails, you know, what's, what's being removed, why. Um, and that includes, you know, obviously if it's the bladder, but also the prostate, what's the implications beyond that, you know, for example, sexual function. Um, I even sometimes speak about infertility. I, you know, like I said, this is an iterative process. I had a patient that, you know, I learned this. This was um, probably a, a few years ago. I hadn't mentioned that part, infertility, um, because I thought based on his age, um, erroneously, that that wasn't of interest to him. And it was. Um, so I, I now try not to take for granted all of that. So I try to wrap it all and all up in, in terms of, you know, what we're taking out and how that, um, how that influences their future. Then I get into uh, what the hospital expectations are, what we do beforehand, what we do in the hospital, and then the expectation after surgery. And there's a lot of information. We have um, paperwork and pamphlets to explain this. So I have the, it's almost like homework reading material after they speak with me. And then we circle back again, often right after neoadjuvant chemo to discuss things again. And I found that that visits even more. I can go a little more into the weeds with it. And they are much more, um, they're calmer, they're more confident about what's going on. And they have even, um, I would say, um, more specific questions that we can um, delve into. And that's at that point, we talk a little bit about the types of complications that might occur, how I try to avoid them. And then other items um, in terms of, you know, the recovery itself. Yeah, I think uh, I wholeheartedly agree with expectation management. And for me personally, I will tell my patients that about two thirds of patients are going to have some hiccup, issue, problem, mm -hmm. complication, you know, hopefully from something small, manageable, like a, like a UTI to, you know, larger cardiopulmonary events, et cetera. And I also go as far to tell them that realistically, it's going to be six or eight months until they even start to resemble what they did certainly before surgery and, um, you know, potentially even longer if, if chemotherapy was involved. Do you kind of touch base on some of those aspects? Yeah. And I think that is important in terms of complications. Patients, and, and I think that it makes sense. There, I always explain, like, listen, as a surgeon, I've seen many cystectomies, right? But this is their only one. So they don't know where they fall um, in the norm. And it help, it's helpful to understand if I'm having, if they're having a small complication, that they're actually among the majority, honestly. 
You know, it's not it's not uncommon, as you said, 67 percent have a complication at 30 days and 15 percent of those are high grade. So, I mean, it's not an uncommon experience. We're going to try to avoid it. But if it happens, here's how we manage it. Uh, the other thing I explain is that, you know, these complications may result in them coming back to the hospital. Um, if you look at some of the larger like Sear Medicare type studies looking at readmission rates, they're up to about 40 percent at 90 days. And if you look at surgical oncology procedures, not just cystectomy, but other significant procedures like, for example, thoracotomy or colorectal surgery, cystectomy has the highest rate of uh, 90 day readmissions. So it's not an uncommon experience for patients. So I let them know that that might happen, but we're going to, you know, do our best to avoid it, to minimize it. And, um, and I know we'll talk a little bit about that in the next, you know, 40 minutes of how we do that. Absolutely. And for patients coming in, asking for either open or robotic approaches, do you have any guidance for them? So I tell them, and, and this is a truth, I actually just um, started to, uh, again, reiterate uh, the way that I have this conversation. I don't know if your uh, OR is very similar to mine, but sometimes I'll have, I do have a standing robot room, but sometimes, you know, I, I just have more cystectomies one month and I need to find different operative time. And I may not have the luxury of having a robot room if I'm going to perform a robotic cystectomy. And so I now counsel all of them because I really don't know what the OR is going to look like when they often come back around after neoadjuvant chemo. I explain, hey, listen, we're going to do a cystectomy. It may be open or robotic. The most important thing is that we get you in in a timely manner. The open versus robotic portion, in my opinion, doesn't matter. You know, we have the RAZER trial that showed that there really isn't a significant difference in complications between open or robotic cystectomy. You do see some differences in estimated blood loss, and I explain that. But the most important thing is that we're getting you a timely surgery, and we can accomplish that either open or robotically. So in my opinion, the time is more of the essence. If I have a robot room, great, and they're a good candidate, wonderful, we'll do robotic cystectomy. But I don't promise one or the other because I think the timing is so important. And typically about how long do you wait after, say, the completion of chemo? At the earliest um, when you're scheduling cystectomies? In our group, we say four to six weeks. And um, this is actually one of those areas in urology or even surgery that we do actually have some evidence that waiting too long can uh, worsen survival. There's a good study that demonstrated like if you get, you know, delaying surgery, particularly beyond 12 weeks, um, you know, there was an increased risk of lymph node metastases, for example. But I think in our group, it's about four to six weeks. Um, what Are you about similar or do you have a different um, protocol? Yeah, I would say that's right on it. So I think this, you know, sets up quite nicely. And of course, there's disease characteristics and, you know, when the cystectomy needs to take place. How about patient characteristics? How are you kind of evaluating, you know, internally, either using your gestalt or with, um, you know, actual available tools, patient comorbidity, frailty and so forth? Yeah, we almost have an overabundance of like calculators and indices and, and it's busy in our clinic, you know, and, and I, I don't, I say our as in the urologic community, <laughs> we're, we're trying to see as many patients as possible, fit in as much information as possible. I would say that most of us do actually a pretty good job with the eyeball test, but it's what, in one of those situations where how do you replicate the eyeball test? And sometimes we're wrong, you know, so it's nice to have some something to use and in some iterations we've used and we still use we use a modification of the freed frailty score for all the pre-ops and you know that's looking at things like weight loss um, exhaustion uh, their walking speed their strength and or weakness um, and their physical activity 
we don't um, use that as much as we used to and sort of went a little more toward the comprehensive geriatric assessment, which you can do, I think, in a relatively abbreviated way. So that's really thinking more about functional status. It resonates with me a little more because that is truly what I want to know, functional status, because it helps me decide what we need to do preoperatively and perioperatively to get them back to their baseline functional state. And so things, and these are really easy and fast things. Um, I tend to ask them myself. And I say that because you can do it during your pre-op, but it tends to be that the pre-op is fairly soon before surgery. There's not a lot you can do at that point. So I think it's important to ask these questions actually at the first visit, because that's, that's the time that you're going to have to actually act upon them and do any kind of modifications that can improve their final outcome. So some examples, I, I always ask about their ADLs, their um, activities of daily living. So really simple questions. And you can get a good sense of it anyway. Like, do you do your own shopping? Can you get out of your out of bed yourself? Do you need help? Um, do you dress yourself? I mean, you, sometimes you get the eyeball test, you know the answers to these, but oftentimes you don't. So you have to ask it. Um, I always ask about any deficits in, you know, things like hearing, vision. That's helpful because, you know, you're thinking about hearing for neoadjuvant chemo anyway for cisplatin-based chemo, which is a contraindication, um, and also swallowing. Um, I had a few patients that had issues with that, and I didn't pick it up until, I wouldn't say it was too late, but it was, it was later than I would have liked. And so I like to know that up front. I always ask about falls. It's probably one of the most important questions one can ask. Um, have you fallen the past year? It's a really quick question. In fact, it's on our intake form. I don't even have to ask it. They, they um, write it in um, as they come to see me. So you can do these things to limit the amount of time you speak with them. If you have like a, um, a sheet, that's what we have where in their waiting room, they're filling this out. And then when you, you have it, when they, they come and see you. And the last thing, if you, if you really want, and this is really helpful, is to look at a timed up and go test which is actually quite simple. You could do it right in the, um, you can have your nurse do it if you want to set it up that way. But essentially the, you know, the, the patient starts in a chair and then they're, they're instructed to stand up, walk 10 feet, and then come back to the chair and sit down. And, you know, fast is anything 10 or less seconds, intermediate's like 11 to 14, and any, anything more than 15 seconds is considered slow. And slower, timed up and go, um, that actually has been associated with worse postoperative outcomes. So those are the types of patients that I might be considering things like prehab, and we're probably going to talk a little bit about that, but some kind of preoperative assessment and um, modifying um, program. Yeah, super helpful. And one of the things I always try to dial in on is uh, chronic constipation. I feel like that's mm, one of the things like I kind of want to know. And, you know, obviously Ilias is something we see not infrequently. And yeah. one of the clinical scenarios that I always find to be most challenging are your decent functional status, octogenarians, nonagenarians. You know, let's just say that no bladder sparing approaches are available. And whether it's, you know, disease characteristics or ongoing hematuria, et cetera. And you feel like the only option is a cystectomy. Any tips and tricks? I mean, I, I actually, for about a couple of months, did a couple of cutaneous ureterostomies. And then I wanted to, you know, give it about a six week, excuse me, a six month break just to make sure that those went well in my hands or like utero SIGs. Do you see any role for those um, kind of modifications in, in certain patients? Yeah, certainly. I think that there are some patients that benefit from them. I would say those are few and far between, in my opinion. Cutaneous ureterostomies, I will just say that my practice, I have a higher than average BMI. I don't know if it's all the cornbread down here in 
North Carolina. Uh, that North Carolina barbecue, maybe. It's delicious. <laughs> maybe, perhaps. It is delicious. Um, but yeah, so I, I haven't, I've done one. It was in a thinner patient, though, and they did really well. But I think it has to be very specific and you have to have a specific reason to do it. I think in most cases, even in ileal conduit, most patients will tolerate that. But there are some, um, some who already have, for example, like a col- colostomy. You, we, you could have discussion. I also think about their, you know, I think that's where like things like e-prognosis can be helpful of, of understanding or thinking about their um, lifespan, right? Because ureterosigs for long-term options, I don't prefer to use them. I'm not saying you cannot, um, but that's not my go-to. But if you're, you know, if you're trying to make it as um, simple as possible and you know their lifespan is, is limited, I think those types of modifications make a lot of sense. But like I said, it has to be with the right patient and for the right reason. And we, we talk a lot about it, you know, with the patient there to help us make the decision together. Yeah, wholeheartedly agree. And I would go as far to say that anytime I'm making a decision like that, I would certainly run it by one of my partners, you know, kind of in a multidisciplinary format just to make sure that I'm not, you know, way off in left field. Oh, yes. I, I think I think that's actually a great point that I'll just reiterate because I remember, you know, finishing residency and thinking, okay, here I am. This is what I'm going to do. I didn't realize how often my attendings spoke to one another, you know, and talking about different cases and, you know, just kind of vetting ideas together. And I love that. In fact, I do that quite often. And, you know, I think in surgery, sometimes there's this perception it's a sign of weakness. And I, I absolutely do not agree with that mentality. I think it's incredibly helpful to have that extra opinion, um, no matter if it's like picking up the phone, someone across the country or, you know, one of your uh, partners, we have five people. So we're, you know, we're very fortunate to have lots of people to talk to, but definitely I I like that you brought that up because I think it's an important piece of, you know, making sure that you're making the the right decision for the patient. Good, good. So clearly there's a different considerations for patients receiving upfront cystectomy versus those receiving the adjuvant chemotherapy. Let's just maybe talk through integrated multidisciplinary care perhaps starting with just a, a patient going straight forward to cystectomy. Are there any kind of standard referrals that uh, or recommendation that you provide for patients going straight to cystectomy, assuming we've got, call it two to four weeks until their surgery? Well, I would say, uh, so I, I'm not sure if you're speaking about multidisciplinary care with medical oncology, but I'll, I'm going to speak to both that as well as other um, disciplines and because I, I think they're they're both important. The first thing I'll say is that we really don't have anyone that just goes straight to cystectomy in the sense that all patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer, no matter what, actually see both, um, well, all three of us, basically, medical oncology, urologic oncology, and radiation oncology. Even if radiation oncology may not, or, you know, radiation may not be the best option for them, or, or even cystectomy might not be the best option. But I think it's important for patients to hear these different options and why it is or it is not recommended in their particular case. Because I think decision regret, this is my personal opinion, decision regret often comes from the lack of information prior to decision making. So you can really eliminate that by just having a simple consultation. It also builds trust with the patient that they know and they feel very confident in the decision they're making with their provider. So that's that's the first thing in terms of multidisciplinary care. Now, now if you, you're saying, okay, now we have a patient there, let's say they're not going to receive neogenic chemotherapy, maybe they're not eligible, radiation's not appropriate, they're going directly to cystectomy. Now, yeah, right. we have other multidisciplinary consultations that we think about. 
And for those, we are, at least in our practice, every patient undergoing cystectomy will meet with a nutritionist and will also meet with the woundostomy care and nursing and, um, and then have a preoperative evaluation with us as well. So that's standard for everyone. Now, we might add a few other things in depending on the patient. And, and an example of this is essentially, you know, the patient who we've sort of been skirting around, the patient who's older might have some, you know, functional issues, um, some concern about nutrition, for example. That patient may be best served with a geriatrician. Maybe they have a really good PCP. I'll work with them. But I think uh, that is the type of multidisciplinary care that maybe you're asking about that I think is also important to set up a platform by which they're going to have better outcomes and a better team approach to to their care. Yeah, hit the nail on the head and 100% agree that having the patients informed with all relevant, let's just say, allopathic medical consultations is mandatory. And now it's getting more into, you know, we have like a best practice advisory if it's a patient that's over 80 period or if it's a patient older than 75 with two comorbidities they get a reflex referral to geriatrics or if they smoke you know, for mm -hmm. instance they would get a reflex referral to smoking cessation those are those are precisely the types of things I'm, I'm uh, referring to and with your with your patients uh, seeing the wound ostomy care nurses do you have them actually wear an appliance or a device prior to their operation? So that's a great question. The, our, I leave it to our wound ostomy nurses to do that. I think some do and some don't. And it's, I almost am certain it's related to what the patient prefers. There's always the option. They go home with it to, to take a look at it, to have one. To, I think it's, it makes a big difference to actually have it in your hand. It's you know, trying to describe that through words only. Even just pictures is not enough. So I think that's why that, that particular evaluation, that particular um, consultation is so important because it gets that, the, you know, it gets it in their mind ahead of time. The other reason I think it's important is just think about after surgery. I mean, they have anesthetic on board. They sometimes, they sometimes get confused. I'd rather them learn it, you know, at a point where they're, you know, I don't have any issues or I don't have any concerns about cognition. You know, they've practiced a little bit and, and all those expectations have been set. The other thing is that and, uh, and I think maybe perhaps this is obvious to those listening, but I want to know where to place the, 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 uh, the stoma. Um, where do they have their pants sit? You know, we think a little bit about placement in that regard, too. And let's say it's a patient who had radiation therapy. I actually get them marked on both sides just in case. I don't know. It's maybe a good luck charm in my mind. <laughs> if I have it marked, I won't need it. But, you know, just I like to be prepared and have all options potentially available to me. And then the last thing that we instituted probably about two or three years ago, it was a resident, Gopi Narang, who led, and, and actually Mark Ehlers as well, led a, an initiative where we, a QI initiative in which we actually recorded a bunch of videos. And it was really um, interesting. So there were ostomy videos about just, you know, standard education. But then there were a variety, and they're very short, like one to two, maybe three minutes at most. But a bunch of them that are like troubleshooting videos too. Like here's a common issue, you know, and maybe that issue is a peristomal hernia. Or here's another common issue, leakage. Or here's another one, um, some erythema around the skin. And it's been really helpful. And I say that because patients without my prompting have actually said, hey, those videos were so helpful. <laughs> and it's funny, I hadn't thought of it before. And so I really... Um, I think it was really a great addition to have that information because they can, it's sort of self-motivated learning and it's, and it's there. They can kind of 
take it in, you know, one little piece at a time and then also refer back to it when they need it postoperatively. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And, you know, two things for us, um, the patients get marked by wound ostomy care nurses who have expertise in this 100% of the time. And that's usually at the, at the preoperative visit just for logistics and coordination. And the second thing I think that I hammer home initially and also in the hospital is expectation management. You know, early on between their incision, between edema, between postoperative pain, you know, I feel like there's a higher rate of leaks, et cetera. And I always just tell them, that, you know, this is going to get better. It'll settle out. We'll, you know, we have one pieces, two pieces, concave, convex, you know, all types of things. And there's going to be a perfect shoe that fits you. Just be patient with it. Yeah, I say the same thing. I think that's a great point. Um, one of my favorite phrases, I stole it from Marie Forleo, is everything is figure outable. And I tell them that. I say, you might leak, there might be some issues, but everything's figure outable and we'll do it. <laughs> because I think, you know, that's true. I haven't had a case where we didn't figure something out, you know. And preoperatively, certainly in the first four weeks, that's when you see the most complications. But I, I don't even know if I would use the word complications, just really trying to sort out, you know, what's the best bag? How do you fit? Like, what's the, the best um, timing with bag changes and things of that nature? So, you know, it's all about trying new things out and then you find what works for you. And for patients receiving neobladder, would you have them see pelvic floor physical therapy or instruct them on kegels prior to surgery? Yeah, so that's a great question. I, I actually don't routinely send them to preoperative pelvic floor physical therapy, but you know, your question makes me now curious. And that's the fun part about enhanced recovery after surgery is like thinking about these things and learning from one another. I think it's actually very reasonable to do that. Now, I definitely, we talk about kegels, but I haven't done anything formal. Now we have, I've used it postoperatively when I need to, um, very similar to what I use for, for example, prostatectomies. I think sure. I'm a big believer in pelvic floor physical therapy, first of all. I think they're wonderful there's really hardly any downside to doing it. And so I think that's actually great. Do you, do you routinely do that? I'm out, out of curiosity. Have you found that to be helpful? I do. Yeah. I just feel like, um, you know, particularly for female neobladder patients, um, mm -hmm. there's just so much change that, um, you know, really dialing in to uh, how to do them properly. Again, not exactly the same as say, for instance, like post-childbirth kegels. And, and for the men as well, you know, despite the fact that it's you know, removal of the bladder in the prostate. I just feel like it's a little bit different than than a standard prostatectomy. So I will get them in on the front end. Yeah. No, I like it. I, th I think I'm going to try that. I appreciate you bringing it up. So uh, for patients receiving new adjunct chemotherapy, clearly you've got a little bit more time and clearly, you know, there's an opportunity for them to get significantly deconditioned. Out of the gates, do you start patients receiving new adjunct chemotherapy assuming they don't have some, you know, bleeding tumor on uh, any type of DVT prophylaxis? So... That's an interesting question. So I would say routinely, no. Our medical oncologists tend to drive the, the boat um, on this one. But I, I do know that, and, I, and I've thought a lot about this because, you know, post-operative, we do. Um, we, we do give four weeks of extended duration prophylaxis, which, you know, there's good evidence for. Um, and I, I started thinking about that. And it, it, it doesn't necessarily make sense that we don't do it preoperatively if they're receiving chemotherapy because they're still at, you know, quite a high risk of, um, of DVT. Now, I do know that they will basically assess the risk. And if the risk is high, they will give it. They don't do it routinely. But I'm wondering, and, and one of my medical oncologists, I had a conversation um, with her earlier this week, uh, said that they're starting to think about moving in that direction. So I think this is a moving target. And I bet you, if you, you asked 
number of different people, you'll get different answers. We don't do it routinely now, but I, I wonder in the next couple of years whether, whether we will. Um, what about your practice? Yeah, it hasn't really trickled in kind of reflexively in our, in our practice for bladder cancer patients, but actually on the testis side, we have gotten pretty forward moving if they've got certain criteria, you know, bulky masses, um, large BMIs. We actually wrote a clinical trial that uh, was, was a good experience and, um, you know, it was with Lovenox. And literally like a month later, the DOAX came through as yeah. excellent options in ambulatory patients. So um, since it became, an, you know, a recommendation and an option, and it seems to be picking up traction, um, we've used it more. But I, I kind of agree with you. I think it's probably going to pick up steam in the next several years. It's just not quite prime time yet. Mm -hmm. um, excellent, excellent. So for... You kind of mentioned this earlier, Angie, for patients that are coming in looking pretty deconditioned, whether they're receiving chemo or not, um, prehabilitation. Can you just give us a, a, a brief what that is and what that looks like in your practice? Sure. Yeah. So I guess just to, to define it for those who haven't heard about prehabilitation, because it's relatively new, um, it's basically the concept of improving the patient's fitness before surgery. So, you know, we know rehab is sort of on the back end, you know, improving fitness. This is actually thinking about it ahead of time, you know, maybe doing some preoperative strength conditioning or cardiovascular conditioning. And so, um, you know, there, I, and I think there's some good evidence of why it might work in the sense that we have, especially for cystectomy, right, for bladder cancer, this median age of 73, we're, we're, we have older surgical patients, they might have some functional impairment, they might have sarcopenia, which is you know, a form of muscle loss. And, and so, and, and then if you combine that with the fact that major surgery is going to contribute to additional loss of muscle mass, mass and strength, then prehabilitation kind of makes um, at least logical a sense. But beyond that, there has been some work done. Um, you know, Jeff Montgomery out of Uni University of Michigan has done some pre prehab work looking at feasibility in that it is feasible to do some preoperative physical therapy prior to surgery, um, specifically cyst cystectomy. And there's some other very, you know, uh, you know, relatively small, you know, trials that looked at, um, you know, strength, endurance, conditioning, um, and they found that um, this was feasible, meaning that, you know, upwards of like 75% of patients could actually complete it. And it improved um, their muscle strength or muscle power. That's actually how they, you know, they, they measured it in about 20% of patients. I think what remains to be actually understood is, you know, how long do you do it? How intense should it be? And does it actually improve all of those distal outcomes? I think it's a, a tough trial, but it's possible. And I, I suspect, I bet somebody's, <laughs> um, or I hope someone's doing it right now. But, but in terms of what we do at UNC, because we don't have, you know, definitive evidence of like what to do, um, I would say that we use that geriatric assessment functional status, especially for those undergoing neoadjuvant chemo. If we see someone who is relatively deconditioned Getting them a PT or an OT consult preoperatively can be very helpful. And, it's, and, and that's a simple, it's a simple um, consult, but it can be very helpful. So we don't have a formal prehabilitation program, um, and perhaps we should. And, you know, I, I suspect like in a few years, we'll probably have something a little more formalized. I bet many of many programs around the country will because it's relatively new. But for now, we, we sort of do it on a case-by-case -case basis. And, um, and otherwise, I tell all of my patients to walk regularly, you know, because most patients ask that question. They're like, well, doc, what can I do 
to improve my um, success with surgery? What can I do to improve my recovery? And this is what I tell them. I just say, hey, listen, you know, if you're already exercising, continue exercising, you know, just maintain that. If you aren't, why don't you start a walking program? And I just, you know, I just give them that information. But if I think that they need even more than just that direction, then I will get um, consultation from physical therapy. Yeah, it's pretty similar here. You know, I can't say that we've routinely employed, you know, preoperative cardiopulmonary exercise testing, things along those lines, which may have some, you know, kind of objective concrete triggers when to refer or intervene. But uh, certainly it would be a nice, nice thing to have in our toolkit. All right, we're going to pause our conversation here. And in a couple of days, we'll jump right back into it in a second episode on perioperative optimization. Mm-hmm.